Hey guys, we're back with more In The Money Media weekly announcements. JK and Peter back for only one more day with the early Lone Star Double. That'll be for tomorrow, Tuesday. We have Talk Racing with Naomi. Al Stahl is her guest this week. He's the trainer of Tom Sitat, who just got done winning the Stephen Foster last weekend. Ray Luke Gutierrez is the guest for JK Plus One. And let's not forget about that Stronic Five podcast where Pete and JK go over each leg in the sequence and give you the ABC DRF ticket maker strategy to help you hit that wonderful $1 minimum bet with a 12% takeout. Should be a fun week. And last but not least, Andy Serling will be my guest on next week's Redboard Rewind. We'll be going over the Met Mile card from Belmont Park. And now let's get started with this week's Redboard Rewind. Welcome to episode 40 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbuehl. My guest today is the on-track handicapper for Churchill Downs. It's Ed DeRosa. We go over three races from the Stephen Foster card on Saturday, and some angles we talk about are why using a betting line can make you a better player, why people need to focus on the long run when playing and not being so results-oriented, and how an American pharaoh on turf went off as an overlay. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Ed DeRosa. Ed, how are you today? I'm doing well. Uh, first week with no Churchill to look forward to, so we'll certainly miss that. But uh, summer racing just around the bend. Now, I believe Keeneland starts in a few weeks. Like, being a public handicrapper, you get this week or week and a half off. Is this kind of where you kind of reflect on the meters? Is this kind of where you get a lot of the housework done and stuff like that, where you're not having to focus so much on racing? Yeah, and, um, I am doing Ellis, uh, so, you know, not not too much time off unfortunately mm-hmm. uh they start thursday but nevertheless i mean churchill's definitely the the deepest dive i take when they're running live so uh you know like for instance closing day i wasn't on air and, and actually just took the day off and took a deep breath and uh today will be a good day to, to not only because of this podcast but just in general take stock of how the meet went uh you know some personal wagering trends that hopefully i can continue through uh, the, the big racing this summer. And, uh, but yeah, no matter what, even with Ellis starting and, and Keeneland's next week, and I'm going to go up to the Indiana Derby. So still a lot going on, but no matter what would encourage anyone just af- after the meet, allow yourself some a- a- actual pause where, you know, you do get to take that deep breath and exhale and you're not, you know, thinking about what what's next uh, in terms of horses. It's, it's essential to, to keep in a good frame of mind. Now, obviously, Saratoga has, like, the extra day off. Like, I, I can't imagine all those years of six days a week and all those full fields. It's just, to me, it's just mind-numbing how you could even get anything done there. Plus, you know, people are going out at night. They're staying out until, you know, 11, 12, waking up and doing it all over again. I'm just like, you guys must sleep for six days after you get done with Saratoga. You'd have to think so. And, and I've never, uh, even in, in the five-day era, last year I didn't, but certainly in the six, I was never uh, an everyday Saratoga handicapper. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the nature of when the draw is and certain deadlines and things like that, I, I mean, in, in earnest, there's really no day off if you're doing it every day. Obviously, some days have less work than others. 
Tuesday probably the least when they were dark that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, I remember working at Thoroughbred Times in the, the early 2000s, and there was a year when Saratoga, Delmar, and Ellis all raced six days a week, and then you throw in Monmouth and Arlington <laughs> doing five. I mean, it's just incredible to think back uh, to, to the heyday, and, you know, there was just silly money going around. That's kind of the time the Green Monkey sold for $16 million mm-hmm. and guess everyone just wanted to run their horses because they were buying them for so much but yeah but like you said it's tough to think about how to deal with the six-day meet knowing how how much four days at Churchill knocked me down and then you throw in Delmar and Ellis running that kind of schedule and I just can't imagine now going into the, the Churchill meet was there any specific type of bet or type of race that you were like really aiming to like okay I, I know when I look back in time I really do well with these races I can really try and hammer them in this meet uh, for this meet, it wasn't a, a specific race right off the rip. I, I definitely, as someone who was paying real close attention to Oaklawn and Will Rogers and Fonner, just trying to pick up some trends of what types of horses were winning in this quarantine era. Uh, I, I felt like the early part of the meet would follow closely to some trends we saw when Oaklawn closed and, and Fonner and Will Rogers. And I definitely think that led to some success. Uh, I was pretty keen to, to take horses who were in form, who had run. Uh, I thought that was important, and that mostly played out. Uh, and then two-year-old-wise, we, we kind of saw Wesley struggling down in Florida mm-hmm. uh, with his early run two-year-olds. And I just figured, well, now's the time to either decide if that's a trend or not. And it's a gamble, but betting on horses is always a gamble. And Steve Asmussen was just lights out with his two-year-olds this meet. They didn't all win. Uh, but shockingly, you know, some that look like they should have been two to five after the race were going off at nine to five, two to one. Uh, so riding the Steve wave in the two-year-old races uh, was, was a pretty important component of, of my success for sure. I remember, I can't remember who was on the podcast. It might have been Andy Serling even. We were talking about how Jeremiah did so well last year with his two-year-old. And we were talking about like how I was started betting his two-year-old at Aqueduct. And he's like, how many bullets can you have though for over consecutive meets? He probably ran all of his best horses up there at Saratoga, and now he's not going to run as well. Do you kind of look at that now as maybe Steve might have – people might jump on those two-year-olds but might be less value now going into the other meets? Yeah, I think uh, certainly when people look at the, the most recent stats when he's up at Saratoga, the, the waters admittedly get deeper at Saratoga, especially for two-year-old races. So there there might be – you know, he, he could – I see a situation where he's over bet because of that. But at the same time – when you throw in names like Pletcher, Brown, et cetera, you know, that, that helps inflate his price. Uh, I think overall, though, uh, just when betting trends or trying to take advantage of them, you really do have to, I think, gamble on whether it's something you want to follow or not. Because by the time everyone notices and identifies it, the value is zapped out of it. That's just the nature of, of paramutual racing. Uh, you know, we see it with early speed. You know, back, back way back in the day, pre-synthetic, when they were th- the dirt before the dirt, uh, you know, Keeneland was just notorious for the way speed played, especially mm-hmm. at the short, short stretch. And, you know, when everyone knows that, there's there's not a ton of value to be had, occasionally for sure. But, you know, for the most part, I, I like making judgment calls after one or two days of racing or even on a card one or two races in, assuming it's the same type of race like a dirt sprint and saying, man, speed looks good, and then you can take a flyer maybe on a 10 or 15-to-1 horse, or a closer looks good, and maybe you, you upgrade a price. 
uh, what the mistake people make is just using that to boost their opinion on the favorite mm-hmm. who's already likely overbet. Um, but you know, I know biases are important, especially if you're a trip handicapper, that's something you want to keep in mind when the horses run back. But from a gambling standpoint, uh, just having the confidence to say, man, I'm going to gamble here. It looks like speed might be good. This horse is an upgrade 15 to 1. That, to me, is the time to strike on, you know, sort of the bias and trend talk, which I know is sort of a, a tangent from the Steve discussion, but it's somewhat similar because that was I thought with Wesley. Like, people might say, well, it's Florida. We know how good he is in Kentucky. And I just kind of thought, well, if we're going to take advantage of this, the time is going to be late May at Churchill when people are still betting them before they hop off. For me, too, like when you hear the word bias, bias to me is a word that is synonymous with, oh, two horses, one on the rail. They're both four to five speed bias. Whereas the meanwhile, the four horses in the back, that are the longest prices are still making up ground where it clearly shows it could be a closer bias. Well, those horses were just good enough on the front end that the bias right. is the opposite. Absolutely. that And that, I, I very rarely make the, the leap, which I totally agree with, but our, we're so inclined to just look at the winner. And, you know, really, to me, when the four to five goes gate to wire and it's the 50 to one who's late closing, that's when you think, okay, why did this horse run that way? You know, should he have won? Could he have won? The answer is no, then... To me, that's the time to maybe look at closers, not the front runner. Excellent point. I, I think for me as well, when people all they care about is finding the winner, it's not finding the group of contenders. And then, like you know, your group of contenders could be a two to one, six to one, eight to one, and fifteen to one. If they're still tightly grouped, you should be playing the fifteen to one shot every time, no matter how many times you think the two to one shot will win, because all you have to do is hit the fifteen to one shot one time out of X amount. Whereas you have to hit the two to one shot five or six times to even make money. Right. And and I think people people really devalue or they, they overvalue the thought of getting live to that type of horse or um, you know, they they think most likely winner automatically is, is value if, you know, it's not an an odds on horse. So um I really do wish, well, I guess I don't wish because it's their money I, I take when I'm right. But, yeah, if you're listening, uh, just really encourage when you maybe find a bias or maybe it's a trainer trend or things like that is, is don't fall into the trap of using that as, oh, man, they're the favorite and they have this going for them, which a lot of people might not know. That's an even better bet when really you should be saying, well, what does that make the fair odds of the horse? And then judge based on that that's really the only judgment that matters let's talk about fair odds or making your own odds line compared to a morning line why do you think more people don't make their own odds line obviously people like barry meadows book uh kind of teaches you really easily they give you a chart and you can just kind of make it easy as it goes is it because that they're afraid that if they make their line wrong it'll have them come up with a decision that they just don't want to make yeah i definitely think psychologically it puts you on the hook more um you know, and, and still you see, you know, whether it's social media or just talking to some friends who who might play casually, if they pick a horse, they want to win if that horse wins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're even a weekend warrior or less than that, you know, you go to Keeneland with some buddies. I get that. Like, that's, that's the easiest way to handicap. It's fun to have a winner. But if you're taking this A seriously and B with 
the thought that I want to be successful with this long term. If you think a horse wins 50% of the time and that horse is four to five, you have to be willing to sit. Uh-huh. It's just long term, you're not, you're not going to win. The, the numbers are never going to be in your favor long term when you bet underlays, even though you think they might be the most likely winner. Or, you know, on a, even on a long shot side, you think, man, this horse can win 10% of the time. He's 12 to one. That's an okay bet. Then, you know, they're, they're circling, they're heading to the gate and clicks down to nine to one and then eight to one. You, you just have to be willing to, to, to watch the horse win and not, not play a horse you think is underlaid. And, that, and to get back to your fair odds question, I think people don't like to be on the hook for that kind of fine line decision making. They just think, well, as long as this horse isn't the favorite, it's worth a play. But you, you really do need to hold yourself accountable, bet to bet thought to thought and a fair odds line helps do that. Now, the one thing I will say is, you know, technically a fair odds line should add up to a hundred because, you know, a horse is going to win a hundred percent of the time if it's a non-contest, as long as it's not a non-contest. And if, if I'm using a fair odds line for wagering purposes, I make it add up to 95 because I want to bake in my human error. No, no one can with pinpoint precision can say for sure a horse is 25% chance to win. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're, you're going to be wrong about that a majority of the time, and you're going to be wrong in both directions. So by, ad, by making it add up to 95, I'm really demanding value in that situation. And now, admittedly, I don't, I don't do that for every race. Um, you know, it's just not something I do, but I, I would encourage everyone to sort of have a feel for the horses you're most excited about. Definitely have a price in mind that is your, you know, your, your minimum, because, you know, like I do the grid and I might have three or four horses in the A column, maybe a couple in the B. If one of them I know is going to be a bomb, I'm going to look and make sure I'm not missing a win bet at 20 Mm -hmm. or 30 to one. And if that horse takes money, then I'll just have to watch or hopefully be alive in some Maltese to better prices because of the bad morning line. And same goes with the logical contenders. You know, if I like two horses, and I think both are a third of a chance to win, two to one, and one's eight to five, and one's seven to two. Well, it's, you know, that's a no-brainer who I'm betting. And that might even be a situation if it's the first leg of a multi-race wager, you you single the seven to two. Yeah, you know you're going to lose a third of the time to the horse you like just as much, but being able to single a seven to two and get that kind of overlay and then spread in other races, that that's where the big scores are more often than not. For me, it's just kind of like my rule of thumb. If I like a horse and he's going to pay over $10, I always try and play those horses yesterday at Belmont. I Notoriously, everyone knows how much I don't like Dylan Davis as a rider, but it seemed like just the only horse in this race that could win went off at 4-1, to one and he won and paid $12. And people say, like, you know, the trainer was 0-19 for 19 on the turf. Like, how do you implement? I, if the horse is going to pay $10 and I feel like I can hit enough of those horses when – that's the only horse and should win, you know, even money 50% of the time. I'm getting such a big overlay in that spot that even if I'm wrong, I think I'm going to hit enough of those in the long run to make money. Yeah, and the long run's the key. And, you know, there are plenty of trainers I look at and think, man, how, how can people bet make this horse based on these stats, you know, three to two or five to two. And, and when we get to the opener and Churchill, that'll come into play for sure. And, but at the same time, you know, the, the horse has shown some talent. The trainer's over 20, but the horse has, you know, you see races that can win this and 10 to 1. 
I have no I have no issue <laughs> taking offers and bad stats when there are other things to like at a nice price. And you know, there, there's a an example in the Ragazin book, which you know is related more to the sheets, but it applies to whatever you use. And you know, the uh, Len Ragazin had a, a customer, and they were arguing over a horse. And Len's like, "How could you like that horse? How could you bet that horse?" And the response was, was "Well, three to one, I hated him, but at thirty to one, I loved him." <laughs> and that's obviously an extreme example, but you know that that's just the kind of decisions you have to be willing to make. You can't you can't get married to a pick or a horse and bet him no matter what the price. You, you have to be familiar with all the options in the race and take the overlays. Let's talk about that first race at Churchill. It was the opener from Saturday. It was a maiden special eight going six furlongs on the dirt. That morning line favorite was the Mark Cassie Raison d'Itri. I'm probably saying it wrong. Second first time out of the barn. You had a bunch of other horses. You had Seagarden as the second choice of first time starter for Steve Morgolis. And perfectly Claire and Curls and Bose both at seven to two. Where'd you end up going in this race, Ed? I landed on perfectly Claire. Um... And the first thing that really stuck out to me when I opened the PPs was that Sea Garden was three to one mm-hmm. on the morning line. Um, and I saw the trainer and, and saw the stats with it, but knew even before seeing those that, that Steve is not a debut trainer. And I thought, man, what's the story on this horse? And, you know, the bullet workouts kind of somewhat told the story, but um, that that's a robust morning line for that barn, you know, debut runner this late in the three-year-old season Curlin's 13 percent debut okay it's fine um so th- there were some alarm bells there like okay is this going to be a tricky race or not uh but perfectly clear didn't have lasix as two-year-olds last year didn't anyway so got lasix off the long layoff and you know th- this is kind of where the paramutual aspect of racing comes in and why it's fun is joe's trip note for perfectly clear my colleague joe christofak from that debut is was perfect trip uh just kind of hung got just got beat Mm. in a race he thought he she should have won and i remember being impressed by curlin s that day and thinking man she was really well met for the debut sheree devos 20 27 percent with her debut runners so she gets them to run well out of the box and i saw no issue with you know this this horse even when favored losing to Curlin-esque and was three clear of the third place finisher and five clear of the fourth place finisher. So for me, the only question was she going to be ready to run off the layoff. And if she is, she's the most likely winner. So, you know, all all those things I just mentioned, I definitely landed on her as the pick hoping that Seagarden would actually take the money. She would. And, uh, you know, I, I did like the Cassie favorite. I thought she ran well on debut, uh, ocean breeze. I thought was a good Billy for Wayne Catalano. So, I had no issue with the debut behind her, even though she didn't take money. Uh, but the, the whole key for me was if Seagarden takes money, perfectly clear is going to be an overlay. And, and I think she was at five to two off odds. The, uh, the Mark Cassie horse, the trainer that I had was second time starter dirt sprint made in special weight at Churchill down seven for 19, which is an amazing stat for that kind of stuff out of DRF formulator. If you guys don't use it, obviously I know you use Brisnet. Uh, DRF formulator for me has been instrumental and I need to start also looking at the Brisnet stuff and trying to figure that stuff out as well. Just kind of afraid to jump over the pond, as they say. The Sea Garden <laughs> thing with Steve Margolis, I think I got the number as one for 72 first time out. So three to one, maybe just being out of Curlin with the bullets. But Curlin to me is just wants to go longer than six. So I didn't really understand that. Curls and bows to me, 
nice improvement for second time out off the barn change for McPeak. But the horse already had so many chances. And the buyer number fit here as a 62 with the 58 and 63 of Raison d'Etri. Perfectly clear. Up close the entire time as a two-year-old. Four by a neck, three by th- four by three quarters. Just could stay up on a pace. And her turn time was a 23.3 compared to a 23.7 for the favorite. Turn time at six furlongs has always been something that I think is undervalued because people don't understand how to do it. And to do turn time, you take the uh, first and second, second fraction and you add it together and you'll get the turn time of a horse. I just This horse seemed to me like just the right proper value. When you get five to two on a horse like that, it just seemed to me like the, the horse was the way to go. Yeah, I thought uh, curls and bows, I didn't like cutting back. That just mm-hmm. definitely seemed like McPeak wanted, or I guess Cox at the time, uh, definitely thought, you know, she was a router, which, you know, curling out of a pizza there made a lot of sense. Uh, she went right to two turns after the debut, didn't take a lot of money in the debut, which, you know, I feel like for a Cox runner uh, was well meant, would have been more than four to one. Uh, you know, then poly track at, at Turfway, um, you know, then at, then at Churchill with the speed and fade. And yeah, it, it just, it, it didn't seem, I mean, I'm sure turf is going to be tried down the road with her after that effort. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought uh, there were some serious questions around the horses who figured to take money and curls and bows ended up going off at eight to one, um, which you could argue maybe at that point was maybe worth the use with the first time tire mm-hmm. starter taking so much money. Uh, Sovereign Appeal ran well underneath. Uh, she, she was the second longest shot on the board and she was actually Joe's pick. Um, which, which I thought was a, a pretty good pick, getting you know her Lasix for the first time, and Brian Lynch with Biscuitza up. Um, you know there were definitely some things to like there, although um, the rail wasn't too good going mm-hmm. six at Churchill this week, going into Saturday two for forty four. So that was a negative, but again an, another one of those situations where fifteen to one I can forgive. You know the rail isn't great, whereas you know let's say three to Seagarden two was down there. Well, she would have been even more of a toss. Mm-hmm. You know, Buck and Steve's trends and the rail first time out, but uh, yeah, the, there were just a, a lot of holes in in some of these horses. Whereas Perfectly Clear just had the layoff question to me, which you know, for two to three, they they were waiting for the right spot, and they, they definitely got it here because she was she was clearly the best of this group. It was kind of like who has the least amount of holes in this race or at least amount of problems. Where'd you end up going from a wagering standpoint? Was it just a win bet on this horse? Obviously, you have to pick five. What else did you do with this with this horse? Yeah, no, it was uh, my, my thought was I really wanted to start the pick five and toss Sea Garden completely. Uh, you know, just knowing how our competition bets pick fives that they're going to see the money on Sea Garden. And a lot of people, especially in the first leg, they want to be live. And they're not going to let a first-time starter taking that kind of money beat them. Uh, so even if they use, let's say they were going to use the two logicals who have run, or maybe three if you were a curls and bows believer, well, now all of a sudden people are adding 33% or 25% to the cost of their ticket, mm-hmm. and that means they're, they're going to cut somewhere. Like Sea Garden to me was the type of horse where people are going to see is live on the toe, and they're either going to add – what they wanted to bet or they're going to cut somewhere else because, you know, they want to make sure they're live with the first or taking money. So my thought for this pick five was I wanted to get through here uh, pretty narrow and I just used the three and six. So perfectly clear was not uh, a single for me in the pick five. Um, 
forget what race two was that day. Uh, that was the oh, that was Froster Frippery. Mm-hmm. I did look at the double wheel pays because uh, I thought Froster Frippery was awfully tough, uh, one of the most likely winners on the day, and and the value just wasn't there from a double perspective. So I just planted my flag in the pick five with three or six. I singled in the next, and that let me find that long shot in race three, which was mm-hmm. definitely the key to the sequence. No way I use that horse if I go any deeper in race one. For me, it was perfectly clear just the turn time aspect of it was a big plus for me and she was this horse probably should have been my best bet in the daily gallop contest we'll get on to who i made my best bet later but let's see if perfectly clear can get it done for me and ed in the opener right now and they're rough raison d'etre and tracing gold those two fastest out from the mid pack Perfectly clear on the outside is there, and Seagarden comes up too. So down the back stretch, Tracing Gold out to set the pace. Seagarden moves to be second, perfectly clear, keeping pace with them. Three of them across the track, down the back stretch, run. Raison d'etre backs off to be fourth while inside. Curls and Bows is racing fifth. Sovereign Appeal comes away sixth, and Lucky Find is at the back. So down the back stretch, three horse battle onto the far turn. In between at Seagarden, three wide, perfectly clear, and at the rail, Tracing Gold, 21. And one was at opening quarter mile. And these three are five lengths ahead of Curls and Bows back and forth. Raison d'etre down inside fifth. Lucky Fine starting to come with a late rally from six. Sovereign appeals at the back in seventh. Seagarden couldn't keep up. Perfectly clear. Comes away with the lead. Opens up to lead by two. Top of the stretch. Tracing Gold gives way. Curls and Bows is rallying. Lucky Find is rallying. Sovereign Appeal is rallying. And Raison d'Etre is rallying too. But meanwhile, Perfectly Clear is kicked away by four. Sovereign Appeal runs up into second down inside. Raison d'Etre third. They're coming for the wire. Perfectly Clear. Clear by three. And Perfectly Clear is the winner. Two and a half in the end. Sovereign Appeal was second. Raison d'Etre third. And Lucky Find finished fourth. And the number six, Perfectly Clear, gets it done paying $7 with an 81 buyer. Nice pick, Ed. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it was good to start the day off uh, with the win, especially knowing uh, a major contender was, was in our back pocket uh, in the in the second race, albeit at a very short price, but felt good about getting getting something going for the meet. But, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely played to basically how, how we drew it up. Uh, you know, she was ready to run. And if I knew if she was ready, she'd be she'd be tough to beat. And Seagarden was was terrible. Um, I mean, two to one on that horse. Just I, I made the comment on social media because some people were chattering about what's going on with Margolis. He never wins first time out. And, you know, my response was, I can't believe a horse like that gets bet down to two to one. And I can't beat this game on a regular basis. Um, and a lot of that's just I, I like to play, I like to play more than I should. Discipline is is probably my biggest weakness, but you know that that's just a prime example of you know if you if you can pinpoint races you have a strong feeling both in favor of a horse and then against a horse who's taking money. Uh, if you're a good handicapper, those are the opportunities that in the long term can make you a winner. Now I've always wondered this: is this more of like a morning line that forces the horse to go down to two one, or if this horse was a ten to one morning line? Do we maybe only see five to one, or do you think the horse still takes all that money down to two to one? I mean, based on what I, I heard that, you know, people who had seen the workout really liked what they saw. Uh, apparently the horse had outworked, uh, you know, an older horse uh, who was in later in the card, in fact. Um, so, so there was definitely a story. I mean, I'm kind of, to be honest, surprised the morning line maker had heard it. Um, mm. You know, it's not like. Mike Battaglia is as good as, you know, he is and, and definitely a Kentucky legend. I mean, I can't imagine he was hanging around 
you know, the grandstand <laughs> yeah. when this horse works. So, I mean, clear, clearly someone tipped him off that, hey, when this horse runs, he's, you know, the, the barn loves him, whatever. And he, you know, knew to, to make him a, a short morning line. Um, but, yeah, in, in this case, I'd say the story was there enough that even if, you know, he had made him 10 to 1, which is probably what he should have been if you just look on paper at the connections and pedigree for this effort, um, the, the buzz was there enough. I, I can't imagine the money not showing up. Let's talk about confidence. Obviously, first race of the day, we both had a really good opinion on it, and we both get the W. Compared to other days when maybe you don't hit the first race or you're way off, like how important is it to hit that first race that you bet, either whether it's the first race, the fifth race, or whatever race you start off by playing? Like confidence to me is such a big deal in racing that once you hit that first race, you have you're playing with the track money. You're ready, you know, you have a <laughs> jump on the competition in a way. Yeah, mo- momentum's definitely good. I mean, I would say anyone should definitely view it as is a positive more than ever a negative. Uh, you know. Re- a humbling game you're never going to hit any race anyway um you're you're somewhat at the mercy of race selection when it comes to these multi-race wagers Mm -hmm. uh you know you it's very easy to blow a a good opinion with you know bad opinion and you know however many races you have to get through in a pick end uh so it it, you know it's always good to to start off as a multi-race player you know for me i was just live in the first leg of the pick five and it felt good to to take somewhat of a stand. I did use two horses. Um, whereas maybe this was a situation where at five, five to two, not, not loving the favorite who was resigned, uh, the three, I won't try to say it either. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe that, that sort of a cagey single or something with the, the underlaid Froster Frippery next, but I try not to let it down. I mean, just day to day, race to race. It's, it's tough to, to string a bunch together and, uh, you know, just kind of have to, to turn the page. The good thing about someone who really focuses on, on pick fours and pick fives is when you're out, you know, sometimes you have a couple races to regroup or, you know, there's another opportunity in the second race of Churchill and the pick four where you can look and say, okay, do I, my opinions that are left, is that worth pressing into a pick four or not? I mean, the pick four is a, one less race and higher takeout. So, to me, pick five is the place to take your stand. But mm-hmm. I definitely would say, as much as I agree that, you know, with the momentum and it feels good to get that winner, uh, it, it's a detriment if, if you if you can, if you you can tilt that early, you're probably in trouble. With a horse like Seaguard, and obviously we talked about how Steve is not the best first time out, is this a horse that second time out, seeing that she took that money, that it, you think we might get a higher price now with that dead last finish? Yeah, I, I kind of made the joke, uh, in fact, that day I was like, well, maybe she'll go to Ellis and they'll make her 10 to one on the morning line and she'll air it four to five, which, which is a dig on when they made Dennis's moment uh-huh. eight or 10 to one when he threw the jock on yeah. debut at Churchill and then went to Ellis. I, I mean, I, I have to say that to me, that was borderline criminal. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I know, I know morning lines are hard, but that was 100% done to defraud people looking at the race and, and seeing who the, the favorite might be or who the track thought would take money. And that that's just not acceptable. So I, I you know, I, ma- I make the joke, but it's, it's kind of from a, a place of anger that, you know, people in that position would use, use it to try to put one over with a horse like Dennis's moment. But, you know, the Seagarden did make the lead. So not all is lost. You know, if, if he broke bad and was mid pack and then faded through the field and finished last, I would say, well, you know, this horse is nothing, but he did go, you know, 21 and three ten seconds uh, on the engine and then just, you know, back out of it and had nothing left. So 
if I saw some steady works that, that hinted at, you know, what people thought they saw going into this race, he, he would, de- or excuse me, she would definitely be tough to not use next time if, you know, as long as she's not odds on. Any other horse in there other than Seagarden, or are we pretty much wrapped up for this race? Yeah, I mean, I think Sovereign Appeal ran okay mm-hmm. um, to, to be second, but, you know, a lot of these are starting to get the starts added up. Lucky Fine on debut. Uh, for Glen Hill, uh, you know, Proctor's another guy that, you know, first out of the box isn't necessarily going to have him cranked. So, um, you know, she she ran okay to pick up some horses late, but, you know, the the Cassie horse probably needs some class relief. Uh, But but perfectly clear, I I think, ran well, and it's definitely one. You know, talking about horses, I'd like to bet out of here. If she's not favored again against winners, could be an interesting pick. 100% agree with you there. Let's jump over to race seven from Churchill Downs. It was an 88,000 allowance without a condition for three-year-olds and up going five and a half on the turf. Well-abled was the three-to-one Moorline favorite for Floron, Giroux, and Larry Ravelli. I love those connections. I always think Larry sometimes gets forgotten about at Churchill sometimes here and there and that he can get a lot of value in there. The horse that ended up going off the uh, favorite was the one and one a ghoul was one of the horses I was looked at that just seemed to be off form completely and couldn't believe that he was the favorite. What were your thoughts here, Ed? Yeah, unfortunately. And, and this is one of the tough situations about being the you know, public handicapper mm-hmm. making picks 24 hours in advance. And some have to do it 48 or 72. Uh, I, I actually fell for the, the entry. Uh, I thought captain Scotty's lone turf effort was, was solid and you know fit with these and and i i actually kind of thought we'd get nine to two four to one uh but you know then then i'm doing my pre-race pat prattle and i look up at the board and you know two to one nine to five and it's just like who's like how can i i'm sitting here talking about this horse and how can my you pick, spin it the right way i'm never i'm never betting this horse to two to one yeah. so you know that that gets frustrating uh and and well able uh, which just might was my my second pick, and then at the price he ended up being, um, I, I definitely played him at, at six to one. But well able, you know, three to one. I was like, eh, but it, it's six and a half to one. He was absolutely was a horse you could have leaned on. Yeah, and I actually picked him when he ran back last time. I thought, well, he, he'll he'll be ready, he'll be fresh off the layoff. He's going to the lead. Maybe he keeps going, and that's what actually happened here. So I was that was a race too soon for well able, but. You know, an example of it, it's important to be familiar with the horses. Um, you know, people like to handicap ahead of time. They're excited. They want to look at the races. But the the difference in your bottom line is going to be made, you know, two, three minutes to post when you actually know the board and are able to play accordingly. Um, I, I was pretty disappointed that I, I was on the entry here at that short of a price. And not, not because when I saw him in the paddock, I was like, oh, this horse can't win. I mean, they were, they still had the same 25% chance of winning as I thought mm-hmm. when I made the pick. But again, I mean, that that's just where you got to separate yourself and say, well, you know, I do think, you know, this horse, these horses in the entries case fit the race. But yeah, I, when I saw two to one in the entry taking money, I was like, well, on the plus side, they're taking money. Maybe the box thinks they're live so I can get a winning pick. But there's no way I'm playing playing this horse at two to one. What are your thoughts when the morning line favorite goes up higher or goes off higher than his morning line intended? For me, I've read some books where they say that it's an absolute negative and avoid these horses at all costs. Obviously, well-abled three to one isn't like an eight to five favorite in such a deep field like we had today. But do you ever just 
would you set, sense that the horse was cold on the board at this point? You know, if it if it's a place like Naira, where I think David's one of the best at the morning line, uh-huh. I might be a little concerned, especially let's say a first time starter. Uh, you know, where there's a short price, and you know, David has his ear to the ground. And I would say, okay, what changed from what he thought this horse would take money to now it's not. Um, there's also some circuits where I know the morning line maker is much more handicapping the race versus how he thinks it'll be bet. Sure. Um, and if I have respect for how that morning line maker handicaps a race, I would say, man, this guy, you know, thought this horse would get bet because he likes him and he's not. Um, so in that case, I would actually see it as a positive because I know the morning line maker is, is looking at the race from who's going to win standpoint. In the case of Churchill, though, just, I mean, being honest, uh, the, the morning line, and it, it's a tough year with all the layoffs. Yeah. The horse is coming from different places. And, um, you know, I, I get it. It was It's a tough year, but the, the morning line was, was off the mark enough that it just wouldn't have concerned me that a horse like Well Able didn't take money. Um you know, it, it concerned me more that the horse I liked at seven to two or four to one was was two to one. Um, so, it, it, to answer the question in a vacuum, in the micro case of Churchill, no. But you know, it's another case of if you know a circuit well, there are some opportunities there because we know David at Naira is knows what's going on and you know has has his finger on the pulse for sure. And then in a place like Oaklawn. I noticed, you know, that the the morning line makers seemed to be more handicapping the race mm-hmm. and was was pretty good at it. And it led to it ended up leading to some bad lines because he was thinking how he saw the race versus the wagering public. But you know, there were some horses who were three to one on his line or four to one that were getting ignored. And not saying that made it an automatic bet by any means, but you know that that's a situation where I I will want to take a second look and say, well, wh- what did he see in this horse that he thought should be a lower price. Let's talk about one last horse before we get to the race replay and your wagering. Holiday Stone, the outside horse. Eddie Keneally, the horse did fantastic as a five-year-old off that trainer change from George Weaver. When you see a jock like Declan Cannon, obviously didn't have the best meet, was one for 46 based off my numbers, but the last two times he had been on this horse, he had won last year. Does seeing that 2% jock, is that a big negative or knowing that he's won on the horse before, do you feel like you can kind of get that extra added value by digging a little bit deeper there? Yeah, I would say both, to be honest. I okay. mean, it's, it's definitely a negative, uh, especially to me with, I mean, this wasn't a full field, but nine's a, or 10's a robust number. Um, you know, turf sprint, you know, you're going to have to work out a trip and it just wasn't in the, the zone for whatever reason. And he's, he's a much better rider than that one for 46 indicates. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, knowing overall that I have some confidence in his ability mitigates a bit the one for 46, as does the, the fact that, you know, Eddie's only ridden Declan once mm-hmm. uh, in two months yet, you know, he got this horse aboard. Uh, as he has been, as you noted, uh, when he closed out last year in the, the late summer fall. So overall, I viewed it as a positive that he was on, even with, you know, that unfortunate stat for the meet. I mean, one for 46, but then only two second place finishes, um, you know, le- less than 10% in the money is, is rough for sure. Um, so, you know, it wasn't great, but, he, you know, he was between five and six to one. I, overall, I didn't like the horse anyway because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I thought the layoff and the five and a half, it just wasn't a horse that stuck out to me in this group. But, 
uh, you know, Declan wasn't a reason that I dug in against. I just kind of didn't like the horse overall. Let's talk about your wagering in here. Where did you uh, end up going from a wagering standpoint? Yeah, it was uh, it was the start of the pick five. Um, so, you know, I I, I I didn't see any instance where Casadero or Midnight Bizu were losing. Mm-hmm. I, I did go deep in here, but I actually didn't use my top pick. Um, a, I, I, I didn't, I couldn't imagine ever using the favorite in here, knowing I like Casadero and Midnight Bizu. Yeah. Um, just so, but then the question is, well, you know, how big of a ticket do I need? What could this possibly pay? Where is my contrary opinion? And unfortunately, it really wasn't in this race because, you know, okay, yeah, I was willing to beat the favorite, but. I didn't like gray attempt at all. I liked Farik a little bit. I don't think that horse should have been 60 to one, even after the race, knowing you didn't run great and was just in the back of the pack the whole way. Yeah. Um, I, I thought 60 to one was a little ridiculous. Joe likes smart remark. And I'm not ashamed to admit that, you know, when someone I trust who I know follows a meet makes a top pick who's 12 to one, I didn't love the horse, but you know, knowing I'm going to try to beat the favorite here and try to hook up some prices with midnight Bizu and Casadero. I'm going to use smart remark every time. Same with if you or Scott Shapiro or, you know, any number of handicappers I, I respect say, mm-hmm. Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm in on this 12 to one horse. It's my top pick. Well, I'm looking for reasons to, for horses to beat the favorite. I, I did use well abled on the ticket. You know, I saw six to one and, and said, why, well, you know, I'm not going to get beat by this horse. Just might was sort of, if, if you would ask me for a pick five minutes to post, it would have been just might. So I played, uh, how many did I actually end up using? I used five, six, two, three, four, five, six. So I ended up using five horses um, and actually went against my top pick, um, who I, I wish I would have messed around maybe in the exacta or, or try. Mm-hmm. 37 to 1 exacta, uh, 170 to 1 trifecta. You know, e- even as much as I like my top pick, Spencer, just it, it, two to one. It, I mean, it was just such an underlay. Yeah. And I could easily have seen just, you know, I'm not a big box guy, but I do think the time to use it is when you hate the favorite. And, you know, I, I think I could make a case for boxing four or five in here that I like for 12 or 20 bucks. And, you know, even then you're you're basically getting two or three to one to beat the favorite out of the, the top two. And, you know, in, in retrospect, talking about this race, that, that may have been the better play than even trying to force a, a pick five play. For me, I was on the number six well-abled. I just... He loves to win being 6 for 13, went off at a great price last time out and raced against some really good horses in Extravagant Kid and Leinster. And just the 6 to 1 Larry Valley Florent Drew, this is what I thought would be the best price up front. And thankfully, I did pick this horse. John Piasek in the Daily Gallop contest picked just Mike, who was also 6 to 1. Let's see if I can get well able to cross the line or if Ed can start off his pick five here right now. <laughs> And they're off, and great attempt with a good start toward the outside, but here comes well-abled flashing speed in between. And just Mike is also there, and Captain Scotty and Karatari on the outside, so down the backstretch, well-abled, fastest early, opens up by half a length. Captain Scotty up to be second, great attempt on the far outside of Karatari, there together third in fourth, just Mike on inside fifth. Farik comes away sixth, Holiday Stone is seventh, Ghoul is eighth by four, Carew's near the back on the trailer is smart remark. And the leader is well-abled round the far turn. In front by three-quarters of a length. 
just might set the strike in tight toward the rail. Captain Scotty is also there. Karatari comes wide off the turn. Great attempt was wide on that far turn as well. Farik angles down toward the hedge with Carews. Meanwhile, well able keeps on going. Well able then for the length and a half at the eighth pole. Just might fully extended in second. Karatari is third. Sixteenth. Well able still there. Still there length and a half. Just might can't get by. Well abled. The gate to wire winner just might was second. Karotari was third. Then it was either great attempt or Carew's. And the number six, well abled, gets it done, paying fifteen dollars with a ninety-four buyer. I was thankful for that. With John Piasek's horse <laughs> coming in second, really helped me in the contest. My God. Yeah, if you, uh, I, guess, I don't know what your final total was, but you know, obviously, if that's flip, that's uh, basically a fifteen dollar ish swing. So um, it, was, it was good to get that one, and. and I mean, I think people don't always uh, like to give credit on a, on a ride up front, but, you know, I, I look at these fractions this horse ran. He was basically ahead for a length um, from the far turn home. I mean, what a what a measured win, I thought, by Florent and Giroux. Obviously, I would have preferred just might. Um, I, I did, did press on that horse at that price, and I think Colby's a great jockey, uh, but well-abled. Uh, I, I should have stuck with him because uh, he, he ran the race. I thought he might you know, last time at a, at a bigger price even, but a uh, good pick. Appreciate it. This is another race where the favorite doesn't run well again. Do you think that this was kind of the day where the public was just having a hard time? Obviously, later on the card, B. Sue, Tom's to talk, get it done, but just in these other races, it just seemed like the public didn't have the right perspective, I guess would be the right word. On where yeah, to I wish, uh, the, the one race I wish they, they had really gotten wrong was uh, the six. Because mm-hmm. I didn't like Paris lights at all. Yeah, um, and, and they did it three to five, and and she just—I mean, now you could say she got a perfect trip, but she basically made that trip herself. And and Tyler r- rode amazing this meet, so he was putting every horse in the right spot, it seemed. And uh, you know, she she wins that race. I mean, she was three to five, which is sixty-two and a half percent probability. Uh, hard, hard to see how she doesn't win that race at least 70 or 80 percent of the time definitely understand people not wanting to bet three to five but th- that was one you know I, when i look back at the card was really wrong about and when we get to the last race we can talk about kind of how the single six paid but even mm-hmm. though i i was wrong about race six um and I, I did play a single six ticket that went five to six and paris lights was the one i missed looking at the will pay and knowing what it probably would have paid with her not winning, uh, I feel good about the ticket. Now, if I had loved Paris Lights, you know, maybe I could say, well, I could have, you know, played a $5 pick six for, I think it would have cost me 80 bucks and, you know, would have paid amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is 20 cents times, 25 times, and I think, man, look at what you won on just a, a $5 pick six. Yeah. And, but I, I didn't like her. And, you know, instead my ticket was only, what is that, uh, Eight bucks, I think I said eight forty maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so instead of betting eighty, singling a horse, and but you didn't like her, and or I don't know, maybe you did, but I didn't like her. I took my stand, and you know, in retrospect, if if I was right, I think I would have got an overlaid payout, uh, but I wasn't. But you know, that that, that just kind of goes back to the same idea of fair odds and stuff. Uh, just as you have to be willing to to watch a horse you like win you have to be willing to, to play some losing tickets sometimes. And, you know, I, I always go back to the, the poker acumen. If, if you never get bluffed, you're calling too much. A hundred percent agree with that. 
And now with this race, too, I wanted to ask you, this race obviously was just a allowance race, no condition. We always hear people talk about, like, oh, there's seven conditions in this race, and, like, how does this horse get into <laughs> this race? And, like, what are your th- – I, I tend to love it. Like, the less conditions to me, the better the racing product. Not that it can be bad or good, but it helps the handicappers when you're not, like, okay, hasn't won in two years. You know, hasn't won in a mile in six months. There's just, like, so many different things you have to look for to see why a horse can make a race. It just seems almost impossible sometimes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, these conditions are definitely, you know, basically to me would amount to horsemen welfare. Uh, they allow guys to run in six, seven horse fields, a much better shot at a check than, you know, a, a full field, like we're close to a full field like this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and the, the race dates, even though they have shrunk, really haven't shrunk in ratio with the horse population. So, you know, when you're you're running, which this year it's three days, but, you know, like a track like Delmar, who was still holding on to six for yeah. a while, um, you know, you, you sort of need these connections. You need those conditions to stretch the horse population. But I agree with you. I, I mean, it, it's a, to me, it's a paramutual game. So if one horse gets bet and the other doesn't, then the, the odds should compensate you for whatever handicap you think a horse is facing whether it's you know they're they've only won once and this horse is a lifetime winner or you know whether there's a, a pace edge and another horse doesn't um that's all part of the, the paramutual system and just taking the right price so i'm with you i i just i'd much rather see and i understand the need for progression but mm-hmm. you know overall once you know we're basically through the the allowance types n1x and 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 2x at that point let's just you know, if you want to run for this purse, have at it. Let the odds board tell the story. A hundred percent. Now let's talk about any other horse that you had thought kind of ran well in this race or any that you thought might be a good bet back. Obviously, like we had said, you know, the old four or five horse exacta box would work out well in here. And I try to tell people it doesn't like, oh, it's a losing wager in the long run. Sure it is. But if you're doing it only in these types of spots when you're picking six, six, twelve, and 15 to one shots as the, as the quarter before, then you're only going to play it, what, once a week, maybe once every two weeks in a certain spot. So you're only going to play it 20x times a year, maybe. Like, that's not a big enough sample size where people can be like, oh, it is really a losing wager. If you hit one like this, you're going to be doing all right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a tough uh, with racing because, you know, you, you do have to take it race to race, but, you know, also the cliche marathon, not a sprint applies. Uh, to me, the key, and there was a hedging discussion on Twitter Sunday night, which, you know, it's a pretty common uh, gambling topic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me, it's you could call it a hedge or not. But race to race, in your head, you should be betting overlays. You shouldn't be protecting with the favorite. You shouldn't be, you know, taking a little off the table by, you know, hedging with horses you don't have in, in the last race. To me, I understand that kind of all bets are off when you're looking at a life-changing score. Um, and my mark for that is, you know, if I can lock in my handle for the month, mm-hmm. I feel like, okay, that's maybe a place where, you know, that's significant money to me. Um, you know, for others, it might be handle for a week or whatever. But, you know, I, I hear people talk about, you know, they're live to 400 bucks, and, and I don't mean to, to say that's not a lot of money or, or try to act proud about the kind of money I want to win, but... You know, if you're putting together 50, 60, 70, $80 tickets 
and you're looking to take money off the table when you're live to just 400 bucks, like you're, you're in the wrong game or you're in the wrong wagering pool because in the long run, if you're betting losing wagers to lock in a couple hundred bucks when that's what you bet a day anyway, you're, you're basically playing to break even at best. Mm-hmm. It's too and, passive. Um, you know, it's, it's the same with the exacta box. I think people, you know, they might like three or four decent price horses and that's their overlay. And then they'll say, well, you know, if the favorite runs well, I don't want, I don't want to waste my opinion on a 12 to one. Mm-hmm. And really you should be pressing your opinion against the favorite, not for the 12 to one. Correct. And you know, it's, it, so that's my, you know, roundabout way of getting back to the, the exacta box question. Um, yeah, it's it's race to race, but you you should definitely be aware of the will pays and or you know the exacto will pays and just be unwilling to accept an underlay payout. And when you throw in the favorite that you don't love, that's what you're doing. And um, it just has to be so race to race where you know if you really have an opinion against the favorite, I think the exacto box is because uh, I I feel very strongly that if you know you don't like a horse to win unless you really have a strong opinion about race flow and the pace, which is possible and does happen. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that can't, but that that's rare. Like every race, you shouldn't have a strong opinion about race flow and, oh, this horse really could be second or third. Unless it's a bomb, then I think, you know, the gamble's worth it. Yeah, I'm going to play this 30 to 1 to clunk up for a piece or to hold on for a piece. But when you're talking about the favorite, to, to me, once you start with, well, this horse doesn't have to win, you should be looking for reasons that doesn't have to hit the board because that's, that's when the trifecta and exactas really blow up. Let's jump into the last race here. Churchill race 11. It was the grade three regret going a mile and eighth on the turf. This is another race where we have a really solid favorite. This one was Graham motion. The crystal cliffs horse ran really well. First time on debut USA, but there was, was there another spot you kind of looked for in here? Or was it just kind of like favorite and, and move on? Uh, no, I, I was against the favorite, and, and part of that, too, was, again, look, no, knowing I like Midnight Bizu, knowing I like Casadero, um, I, I needed some race where I, I had a contrary opinion. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the regret, along with that turf sprint that kicked off the pick five, were the obvious two races <laughs> where everyone is going to have a counter opinion. Yeah. Um, so I really felt like I had to step out and, and not force it, though. I mean, you know, if, if I like the favorite, in all four races, I'm probably, you know, maybe I try to cold deck it or maybe I, I just have to sit out and, you know, see what I like underneath. But, you know, in this case, I actually did like a few horses I figured would be a good price. Uh, Stunning Skies is where I ended up going. Um, I, I knew we weren't getting 20 to 1, but being the last leg of the pick five, I was kind of hoping that, you know, maybe that morning line would, would play more co- toward the morning line in the pick five than it would in the wind pool. And, you know, to me, Gaffleone and Maker is reason enough to play a horse right, exactly. uh, in a wide open race. And I just felt like this race, you know, mile and eighth on the turf, uh, Crystal Cliffs look, looked awesome uh, in her North American debut. And as we'll talk about, you know, after, after we hear the call, uh, you know, I, I didn't love her at the price going in and was happy to fade her even at three to one, let alone what she went off at. But, you know, this is a situation where, you know, I, I felt like I, I sucked out uh, because she was she was the best horse in the race. There's no doubt in my mind. You know, watching the race live, all the trouble she overcame and still coming on, and the winner was gained. So I don't want to take anything from her either. But you know, th- this is one of those where, yeah, going into the gate, I was happy to be against at nine to five. 
but also felt a little fortunate that the winner was, uh, you know, I wish the winner was closer to a morning line in the pick five. Uh, she, she did fit. But, yeah, the, the thought was everyone's going to be sprinting here. Uh, I really need to take a stand against the logical choices. For me, I wasn't playing paramutually. I was just playing in our tournament, and I – I have felt like the last couple of weeks, if I end up being close, me and John Piazza, I feel are pretty even on just handicapping, you know, skill. I said, I can't take the favorite in case he's up on me by two or three bucks and he blocks me and I'll never forgive myself. So I actually ended up on uh stunning sky as well. I just saw a horse that was improving. I like the bullets. Gaff Leone. It's, it's kind of like the same thing. Irad's worse in New York, obviously, but anything Irad jumps on seems to drop him you know, 10, 20 points on the line, even if, even if it's a horse and he's riding it backwards. Uh, Maker just always seems <laughs> to pick up these horses. He claims them, and then six months later, they've won a stake race. And I just said, if this horse can go off at even, you know, 10 to 1, this is the horse that I want for sure. Now, obviously, going into the gate, the horse ended up going off at 6 to 1. Did, was this more of like you were happy to get the extra money to go on it, or were you just kind of like, I think it's still too low of a price. It took a, she took a little bit more money than I would have liked for to push in a a bet within the race. Uh, you know, I, I did get live to a few. Obviously, none were were payouts. Uh, I you know would be bragging about, uh, but I, I was happy after you know a couple. I felt like after running the gauntlet through ten races and, and the stakes, I was just kind of happy to have something to watch and to add add to the profits for the day. Uh, but I did think she was an underlay. And I, I said on the, you know, th- this was another race where I'm looking at the board and like, man, it's it 10 to one, like Harvey's <laughs> local oil would have unquestionably been a horse. I would have, you know, maybe not my top pick, mm-hmm. but I, I mean, that was, that was an overlay. I mean, she had won it a mile and an eighth. They put her on turf on debut. So, you know, to me, that kind of signaled, uh, and being by American Pharaoh, who seems to have, found a home with his progeny on turf more than the main track even uh you know there, there was a lot to like with this horse and I, I didn't love the five to one morning line um so i was kind of well this isn't a horse i'm going to talk about at that price but then a 10 to one you're like well heck yeah that's okay and uh i ended up standing pad i didn't bet the race vertically but uh, admittedly given that crystal cliffs was nine to five, this probably would have been a situation where, you know, with me liking in good spirits and stunning sky. And, uh, I also liked Eve of war. I, I probably would have looked at an exact box if, if, you know, just kind of the end of the day and, and didn't feel like I had a strong enough opinion, but m- mine would have been absolutely to beat crystal cliffs at that price. Let's see if me and Ed can get stunning sky across the wire, or if it's, the American Pharaoh, Harvey's Little Goyle, or maybe even the favorite, Crystal Cliffs, right now. And they're off in the regret stakes. In good spirits, bounces right out on top and quickly over toward the heads to show the way Crystal Cliffs is prominent early. Edgy Angel is also there. Harvey's Little Goyle from the outside is up close, too, with Witez. 
So they race by us for the first time. Very tight pack in the opening two furlongs as Eve of War decides to go on with it now. So Eve of War steps out to lead by length and a half. Harvey's little girl is going to be second. In good spirits down inside is third. Dominga comes away fourth. Crystal Cliffs in between while fifth. Wietes is three wide racing in sixth. His glory muscles outside to be seventh. Edgy Angel runs along in eighth. Wex is ninth. Stunning Sky is tenth. Micheline racing in eleventh. Hendy Woods near the back in twelfth. And the trailer is past the plate. The opening quarter through the stretch in 23 and one-fifth seconds. Long shot, Eve of War. Took charge early and heads down the backstretch run clear by two. Harvey's Logoyle second on the outside. In good spirits, drafting inside while third. Two lengths back, Crystal Cliffs is bottled up inside fourth. Three lengths to make up from there. Four for longs to go. Wietes right alongside of that one. His glory's moved up three wide, racing sixth. Dominguez moved to the outside as well. Started to muster up a bit out of seventh. Edgy Angel circling up eighth, stunning sky there too. So round the fire turn. Eve of War still in front. Harvey's Low Goyle poised on the outside for the final quarter mile. They go by the quarter pole. Here comes Harvey's Low Goyle to take charge off the turn. Eve of War responds right back. In good spirits is there. Crystal Cliffs is bottled up in behind horses, trying to find a way through. She switched outside. Now goes inside. One for long to go. Harvey's Low Goyle's in front. Crystal Cliffs coming fast up the hedge. There's 50 yards to go. Harvey's Low Goyle's still there. Crystal Cliffs trying hard. Harvey's Low Goyle. Holds on to do it. Crystal Cliffs ran out of turf. In good spirits was third. And American Pharaoh has another stake winner. Harvey's Little Goyle pays 24-20 with a 95 buyer. Ed, 10% for the public? Probably more like maybe 15 or 20? <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, Mike probably had, had the right line. And, and I did think she'd take that kind of money. I mean, my stakes winner, uh, you know, I guess back to turf there were some questions. But, you know, American Pharaoh's success on turf is has definitely not been a secret uh you know the the dams two other winners one of them was was a turf winner now she has two from her three so yeah that that's definitely one you know being a being a multi-race better and you know at the end of 11 races having played both all three pick fives all three pick fours on the day the pick six that was just done it was my last race of the meet uh but but it just shows you like if you're gonna do, do this uh if you're a professional better, I mean, that that's, to me, the type of race, you know, if they had an opinion on Harvey Folk Oil, they're going to jump on. You know, they're going to see 10 to 1 and, and hopefully make the most of it. But she never actually stopped that price. I, I remember being on the feed at a minutes post and saying, that's a great price. I didn't like her 5 to 1, but, you know, she's getting ignored here, and, and she stayed that way. So you know, the models didn't catch her, the money didn't catch her. Whoever did uh, should be thrilled with, with twenty dollars on Harvey Folk Oil. I think too. You also hear it's the same type of handicapper who they'll make a ton of excuses for a horse on debut that doesn't run well that they want to bet this time, but they'll say, "Oh, this horse ran once already on the turf, didn't run well. Why is she going to run so much better this time?" Well, it was on the debut. It's it's uh it's Mott going second time turf. The guy obviously knows how to get a turf winner across the board, and the fact that she went up. I knowing that it's out of American Pharaoh too, and I, 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 not that I quick handicapped the race, but I just should have taken more time to realize that. And when I had already kind of gotten my hooks into Stunning Sky earlier, looking through the race, I, from now on, I think I just need to take it to where it's like if I'm going to circle a contender, I still need to like look through the other ones as diligently as possible before just like oh, Stunning Sky twenty one, that's my pick, because this horse at ten to one would have absolutely iced the win for me, even though I already, even though I won as well 
this one would have given me that ROI boost in the tournament that could, you know, put me in a playoff spot. Right. Yeah. No, and I mean, especially from a tournament handicapping standpoint, which obviously most of the podcasts would talk about kind of the paramutual wagering, but you know, that I, I fall into the trap a lot and golf streams a popular contest track. So especially there where the morning line is, is clueless. And I, I've, I mean, just I'll, I'll, I'll own my words. I, I mean, I've, I've hypothesized that it's purposefully bad. It's so bad. Um, you know, and, and you just can't trust it from a contest perspective. And, and I could see, you know, I didn't, I, I played in the, the gallop as well and, and was fading in good spirits. Uh, my opponent needed, needed that one to win. And I was a little nervous admittedly, cause I, <laughs> I picked second. So I thought she fit, but you know, you, you see 20 to one on a horse you kind of like, and you're like, Oh man, what a, what an opportunity. And you know, you, you really need to know, you know, you just have to get to the point where you're making your own morning line. And then in contest play too, you know, favorites don't get picked as much uh, typically. So uh, Harvey's little Goyle would have been a great one for sure. Anybody else out of this race you're looking forward to betting next time out or a horse that you're looking forward to seeing run at least? Uh, I would say I'm looking forward to seeing Crystal Cliffs. I mean, unfortunately, the the money will probably show again. Mm-hmm. She had all sorts of trouble, but, you know, she, she definitely has the look of, you know, maybe a, a Queen Elizabeth II type runner, uh, that race they run at Keeneland for three-year-old fillies. Um, you know, there's plenty of opportunities at Saratoga as well for that age group on the, on the grass. So, uh, you know, we'd give her a look, uh, you know, pa- past the plate, just, I love the connections, McGee and, and Leperou. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I'd love to see them, you know, figure out how to get a little more punch from this one early. I mean, she, she came from last at the quarter pole. So, you know, it, I don't know if it's more distance or maybe, you know, that she has an opportunity as a sprinter, if she could be a little closer and then still have that kick. Yeah. Uh, but you know, she's, she's fun to watch for a quarter of a mile. So maybe they can figure her out, but otherwise not, you know, I thought the top two, were the best two and you know harvey's little goyle we know can can run on dirt too and she seems to want to route of ground so uh you know maybe the alabama is not out of the question for a filly like that that would sure be fun to see before we let you go we had talked about how you are in the daily gallop head-to-head contest just wanted to ask how you feel like you have done the first five weeks you're in second place obviously behind uh mr lecky what are your thoughts on it so far yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, head to head is definitely more my game. Uh, so I, I certainly like the structure. Uh, there are just going to be weeks where I'm, I'm going to get beat by someone who, who freaks. Uh, but my handicapping style is, is definitely, you know, I, I like finding the very logical two, three, four to one horses. Uh, so I'm, I'm the type of opponent where you, you can't have a bad day. Um, I mean, we all throw, we all have goose eggs and, you know, take the collar and that. So I'm not Mm -hmm. saying I'm impervious to that, but my style, uh, definitely suits the head to head because, you know, I'm, I'm around break even when play show, you know, flat bet. So, you know, if if you're the type that takes chances and it's not your day, you're, you're just, you're not going to have the points for, you know, someone who averages, 540 to 720 a race but you know at the same time i'm never going to catch someone who has two 20 winners on a day like that's mm-hmm. that's not my style either so hopefully it gets me in the playoffs and i think then that's when you kind of have to adjust and, and go for some bigger scores because there's there's more glory but i'm definitely in in full-on you know get to the playoff mode and at, at four four and one 
with a decent total score, too, I, I feel pretty good about my chances there. We're definitely glad to have you in here. I'll let you know, too. Uh, obviously, next week we're going to be doing the Met Mile, and it is going to be number one versus number two. It's you versus Mr. Lecky next week for Met Mile. It's probably going to be the matchup of the week. So good luck to you there. <laughs> well, two people like to draw, draw, draw back and forth, too. So it should be fun. Uh, Ed, let, tell people where they can find you on social media in case they have any questions about you know racing in Kentucky, etc. Yeah, uh, EJXD2 on Twitter. Uh, DMs open. Always happy to to talk uh, talk handicapping or just you know if anyone has any questions about the nuts and bolts of what's going on at Churchill or Twin Spires. Uh, happy to, to be sounding board there, but uh, always happy to, to talk handicapping and most active on Twitter for sure. But uh, I have TikTok as well, so hopefully some fun videos and such. But most importantly, uh, just, you know, love the racing Twitter community, love love talking handicapping and hopefully learning from each other as well. Thanks so much, Ed. We'll have to have you on again soon. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Once again, a special thanks to all the great listeners out there who make this show possible who give me feedback each and every week. Appreciate all of you and my special guest, Ed DeRosa. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin, and our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time. <laughs>